0: All right, hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale, the Real Seeker, and today I have uh, another special treat, another special treat for you guys. I'm joined by special guest uh, Jamie. Uh, hey, Jamie, how's it going? Hi, Dale. Welcome to the show. Welcome Thank to the show. You. We've we've been talking a lot with each other. Uh, we've been in, um, kind of involved in a side project that I'll be talking about on my show next week a bit. But um, yeah. Um, you know, Welcome to the show. I wanted to invite you on to talk about various issues for, ranging from things like spiritual abuse, um, also your take on apologetics, and something that's kind of unique. I've never talked about it on my show, but this thing called Disabled Theology. So yeah, uh, just before I, we get into the topics, I want to turn it straight over to you. Do to, you want to take some time to just introduce the audiences to who you are, a bit about your background, and maybe some stuff about your faith journey as well?
1: Yeah, thanks, Dale. Um, I, I grew up in the church um, from an early age. Went to Christian school, uh, Bible college. Um, the unfortunate thing, uh, from one perspective, is that the church I grew up in uh, grew up in was an independent fundamentalist church. So they're very legalistic, very abusive, um, and are really, really shunned the, the whole body of Christ. So that, that's the kind of background I grew up in. Um, as I was getting ready to graduate from Bible college, um, I became aware of some Bible teachers uh, on the radio that started doing series on spiritual abuse. And that sort of opened my mind up to a different perspective than what I grew up in because it was very cult-like. Um, it's, not, well, it's not considered a traditional cult, many of these churches, because they, they do lead with the truth. Uh, but it's more their behaviors and some of their exclusive doctrines that they use to uh, control people. So that's sort of my background. Um, Early on, uh, and and then I started, uh, that was probably 30, I'm 54, so that was probably 30 years ago, uh, 32 years ago. Uh, And ever since, uh, we've supported people on a personal level, uh, involved in cult-like churches, fundamentalist churches, independent churches, and then then that sort of led me into disability theology because I worked with people with intellectual disabilities, and obviously the two are sort of connected in our, in an ironic way because uh, people with disabilities have experienced discrimination from the church, especially if their disabilities are are physical or cognitive or intellectual. Yeah. And i can't
0: hear you anymore <laughs> awesome okay sorry about that well, something muted. happened there <laughs> <laughs> i muted myself by accident um okay. okay cool so so i want to kind of transition into let's look at that first topic this issue of spiritual abuse because this is so important today as, as you and i know kind of thing
1: yeah.
0: so, um do you want to just kind of take a couple seconds first of all can you explain okay look what is the difference what are the essentials of the truth Christian faith, and what is the purpose of the real church supposed to be?
1: Yeah, um, that's a great question. I, I don't know if you want me to list all the essentials. Um, I do have a website where they are they are listed at um, churchwatchdog.webador.com. So we actually list all the essentials. There's, there's quite a few because uh, there's doctrinal essentials. There's moral essentials of the Christian faith. Uh, but just to answer... Uh, briefly or generally, um, the difference between a good church or a bad church um, is the difference between independence and interdependence. Uh, when we look at the New Testament, the the, the the New Testament churches were interdependent with each other for several reasons, for, for accountability, for um, healthy doctrine, um, uh, for spiritual edification, um, and, and so we, we do see examples, for, for instance, in Third John, uh, where, where there is a church that became independent and it ran into all kinds of problems where they, they began to weaponize and abuse the scriptures. So uh, that's one area. The other area would be the difference between liberty and, and uh, legalism, where um, legalism is, is going beyond what the scripture teaches in some cases. Uh, taken away from what the Scripture teaches. Uh, And we know that the Pharisees were notorious for that, right? They had over 600 rules that they made up in their own head, uh, arbitrary personal rules that were not Scripture. Uh, And uh, Christ himself commands us not to follow the commandments of man as the commandments of God, because if we do that, then we're worshiping him in vain. So we got to be careful that we don't make our personal opinions or convictions or preferences God's commandments, right? Um, So that's another distinction. Uh, The Bible teaches us in Galatians that we're we're called to be free in Christ. Um, Now our culture would interpret that differently from how we would interpret it. As believers, we would interpret that as freedom from ourselves, freedom from sin, freedom from the letter of the law, but also freedom from uh, lasciviousness. So those are the two extremes, right? Legalism and lasciviousness that can lead into abuse. Uh, Then the last one uh, distinction I would make is the difference between unity and uh, uniformity. Um, So uh, as a church, the true church is supposed to be united uh, on the essentials of the Christian faith. Uh, The main essentials, I would say, are the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, or how we view salvation, right? Um, Then uh, there's people that try to pick... And choose uh, certain doctrines that are non-essentials and make those essentials. So uh, we need to be very careful that we're united on the essentials, and that we don't become sort of um, like cookie cutter, like Chuck Swindoll says, in, mm-hmm. in our approach to Christianity, where you know Dale prefers to use one version of the Bible, I prefer to use another. We we don't discriminate against each other on that basis, right? Or yeah. we might have different views on prophecy or eschatology. Uh, and uh, we don't discriminate, there, there's room for, for liberty. I forget who, you might know who it is, Dale, who said that uh, on the essentials of the Christian faith, we should have uh, unity on the non-essentials, we should have liberty, and in all things we should uh, have Christian charity. That would be the mark of a true church which no cult-like church or traditional cults follow.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think in the Presbyterian tradition, I know it's it's the doctrine of the liberty of conscience is what they call it. That's- okay in yeah. the Westminster Confession, for example. Yeah. But, um. Just just one quick uh, follow-up here. It's not on the list of questions, but I, I'm sort of curious because I, I have a friend who's going towards the Eastern Orthodox Church. So you right. kind of mentioned the interdependency of the early church. Does that need to be some sort of like formal hierarchical uh, process that has oversight in the church? Or do you think there's a role for independence but How do you see the interdependency kind of working in
1: practice? Yeah, that's a great question. So the way I would see it is when we look at the apostles, like Peter and Paul and the other apostles, they sort of had oversight over the churches. They were the ones who called for the election of elders in the first place and then deacons. So uh, and they commanded others, their their workers, to, to go out from city to city and elect elders. So it it certainly appears from the New Testament, and we also know that the letters in the New Testament were circular letters, so all the churches read them, so they weren't just for one individual church, that there was accountability. And we have all kinds of verses that allude to that, where elders are supposed to be rebuked if they're sinning. We are supposed to judge issues within the church. Um, So so that gives us clear direction. There's examples, right? There's examples also of, of Paul... If you can Peter on legalistic issues of circumcision and then third right. John we have the example of the Apostle John and I always get the guy's name wrong it's uh, Di- Diotropis I guess Diatrophes. there we go I got it right <laughs> one of those so past- yeah pastor so this guy appears to be a pastor or elder or leader um, and um, he's very divisive he's not even accepting the, the disciples right mm-hmm. uh, and excommunicating people of the church. It also says there he's slandering people with malicious words. And Paul calls that evil. He says those that do evil don't know God. But on the other hand, he he gives an example of another leader named Demetrius uh, that this person was was well spoken of by the church. So he wasn't exclusive. He wasn't elitist. He wasn't um, maligning other believers for Mm -hmm. different reasons uh, or excommunicating people of the church. So we're encouraged to have this sort of interdependence, accountability, uh, one with another. Unfortunately, um, we, we don't see that in practice uh, in the church today um, as much as we should. Uh, but to sort to, to of close things out, I think that fellowships, Christian fellowships, um, would have an oversight today, would sort of play the same role that the apostles played in, in the first century. But again, not every church is under an official church fellowship, right? Uh, we've all heard stories of um, um, authoritarian pastors or leaders uh, where they've been reported to their church fellowship and, and the president will step in and, and remove them or, or rebuke them, right? So that's, that's when things are working properly. Uh, but in many cases, um, if the church is independent, there is no church fellowship for accountability, and then almost certainly... Uh, they will they will um, become cult like in in their practice, not necessarily in their doctrine, but in some cases, the doctrines as well.
0: Okay, okay. Yeah. So you, you've kind of answered my next two questions. Obviously, in contrast, you know how, how do Christians who maybe find themselves in a a cult like environment, uh, kind of thing, they they recognize some of the indicators that you've mentioned um, and the lack of a true church church, pastor, but at the same time, they're an independent Baptist church, they they don't have mechanisms of appealing to some outside governing body or some outside source to kind of address that. What should the Christians in that kind of environment
1: should they do? Do they just leave? What, you know, what, what's their response? I would recommend that they come together, they document things they maybe possibly start an investigation they report the church to affiliations that they may be connected with and then there's also if there's financial or charity law violations that they report those things to the government Uh, so those are some things they can do uh internally externally but again i think the best mechanism is when a church is under a fellowship because that, that provides christian accountability And like the scripture says, we don't need to get the unbelievers involved because that could create uh, a bad testimony. So the church takes care of its own business in that sense, where the president or the leadership of that fellowship would step in and rebuke uh, the church that has gone astray or the pastor, whatever the case may be. Gotcha. All
0: right, cool. So, yeah, um, I'm about to transition to the apologetics thing. But before I do, is is there anything about... Uh, just so the audience knows, we, we do have a bit of a time limit, so that's why cool. I'm kind of rushing. But is there anything about spiritual abuse that I haven't asked you about that you think is really important for the audience to know about? Or
1: Yeah, well, th- there's so much on spiritual abuse. Actually, the Bible actually says quite a bit about it. Um, if you go to my website at churchwatchdog.webador, and webador is spelled W-E-B-A-D-O-R dot com, uh, we got tons of information on their there's scripture, there's uh, resources, uh, books. So there's people that have actually written on this subject, which is very interesting, that have experienced spiritual abuse. A lot of it uh, might be, a lot of it is is geared towards megachurches. Um, uh, there's a fairly new book uh, called, a church called T.O.B. Uh, T.O.B., which is the Hebrew or Greek word for good, uh written by um i think the guy's name is brian mcknight with his daughter and it's focusing more on the mega church uh pastors and how how they sort of exploit uh the church through absolute power as well right um so but that gives you some ideas there there's another book by ronald enroth called churches that abuse that book is older Uh, but there's all kinds of other resources on my website that actually give you the, the, the warning signs. And interesting enough is the secular warning signs can be backed up by scripture. Um, even with the qualifications of a pastor, obviously, why do we have qualifications? Because not everybody's qualified, right? Uh, yeah. Just like if you apply at a secular job, you need to be qualified. You need to have the education, the experience. So not everybody's qualified to be a pastor. They don't have the spiritual, mental, uh, emotional uh, qualifications. So the bible gives us a qualification so some of those qualifications are very interesting because they deal with abuse overbearing uh controlling right uh someone that's in it for the wrong reasons mary maybe for for uh, personal gain right so um th- there's lots of scripture that we really can't get into now that sort of talks about uh the right way and the wrong way to pastor a church a healthy church versus an unhealthy church, um, so if you go to churchwatchdog.webadore.com, watch, church uh, you can get lots of, lots of resources.
0: Yep, and for the audience, I'll have that link on my blog as well as in the YouTube uh, video description, so yep, feel free to click on his website. Um, okay, so, so let's transition at this point to my favorite topic, apologetics. Uh, so I know that you are a fan of apologetics as well, but... Uh, do you want to first introduce uh, what what's your understanding of what apologetics is what's what's significant what's yeah. valuable about it
1: yeah well I wouldn't consider myself an expert in apologetics but I've uh, I have an interest in it um, and I think apologetics is directly connected to spiritual abuse we're, we're defending the the Christian faith that's what it means it's a defense of the Christian faith against um, human tendencies, Uh, to abuse, right? So when we speak to, for instance, the New Atheist, they would be the first to attack Christianity on the basis of the abuses of Christianity. Uh, So I think the two are completely connected. Where um, I I believe that um, because God is perfect and holy and righteous, he cannot abuse. So obviously, logically, it's human beings are doing the abuse. We need to separate the two, right? So what part of the church abuses? the human element, which part of the church cannot abuse is the divine element. So I think you need to separate the two. Um, when you have um, cases of abuse down through history, in every case, every single case, it, it's human beings. So really it has, in one sense, nothing to do with the church, because people are using the church to abuse. But you can also use government, business, right, uh, relationships. So it's just human beings that are flawed, uh, that are doing the abuse. In this case, they're using the mechanism of religion. But we all know that uh, the the mechanism of government, especially uh, communistic or authoritarian governments, has had way more impact on abuse than the church has ever had. So um, if you want to compare the two, there's really no comparison, right? Secular abuse greatly outweighs, in my opinion, religious abuse. So that's a little bit of the connection between the two Uh, apologetics is a defense of the Christian faith. Um, That's very. That was very
0: interesting. I never uh, considered the link between spiritual abuse and apologetics before. So that there's also a
1: link between disability theology because people with disabilities, many of them feel that the church has uh, rejected them, that they don't belong. They're not given the same opportunities because maybe they don't look like you and I, or they don't have the intellectual capacity. Um, they're not able to worship maybe in the same way you and I are able to worship. So yeah. the, there's, the, I think the three are linked together, apologetics in a funny way, uh, spiritual abuse, and, and then and then disabilities within the church. Okay.
0: Very interesting. Yeah. I never, I never put the pieces together like that before. So, okay, cool. Well, let me ask you then straight up. Um, do you think that there is good evidence for the truth of, uh, that God exists and that for Christianity in particular. What what's some of the kind of apologetic arguments that you like?
1: About? Yeah, my main arguments um, are, are based on the um, life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's my main interest. I know there's way more evidence than that. Um, but when we look at, for instance, the message of Christ, we see that it's it's a superior message to the other messages, to the counterparts, for instance, the secular or religious counterparts in, uh, in the world. When we, when we look at the uh, morality of Jesus, we also see it, it's superior. Uh, when you, if, you, if you compare it from a philosophical or statistical point of view, it's superior to other religions and um, uh, to its secular counterparts. And then when we look at the miracles of Jesus, which I know is one of your interests, uh, the miracles of Jesus are also superior. Um, he, he did a lot of miracles, uh, including raising himself uh, from the dead, which I find very interesting because the Bible actually says that the, the Father raised him from the dead. In other passages, it says the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. And then in other areas, it says he himself raised himself from the dead. So I think the resurrection of Jesus Christ is probably at the center of apologetics. Uh, because, as we know, as believers, that if you can disprove the resurrection, then we can all go home. Uh, because Christianity doesn't exist. Everything rests on the resurrection of Jesus. That's what the Apostle Paul said. If Christ did not rise, then our faith is in vain.
0: All right. All right. Cool. So, okay. Well, what about on the other end, then? Because, obviously, look, there are arguments against God's existence. The You know, the hiddenness of God, the problem of evil stuff like that arguments against christianity what do you make of um apologetics role for answering these kinds of things
1: yeah again from my perspective i'm not an expert i'm, I'm an observer i have an interest in it i've watched quite a few debates with the new atheists like sam harris uh, lawrence Krauss, the late christopher Hitchinson, and richard dawkins um and and when they debate their counterparts, whether it's John Lennox or William Lane Craig or, or others, mm-hmm. um, I always find that the Christian arguments, and this might be a little bit of bias, but even when they do, um, when they analyze some of these debates from a secular <laughs> perspective, you always see people favoring the arguments of the uh, Christian apolo- apologists. Uh, I just find their arguments are um, more reasonable, more logical. I I personally believe it takes more faith um, to believe in some of the arguments that the new atheists present uh, on on issues of evil, on issues of God's existence. Um, I I find a a lot of their arguments are very shallow. They they resort to um, abuse, name-calling, defamation, intimidation, harassment, kind of ironic. I'm yeah. laughing because, uh, I mean, I've seen Christopher Hitchinson do it. I mean, um, Sam Harris as well, Lawrence Krauss, where they they make people. we're idiots, we're stupid, but uh, there's no one that can believe this, but, I mean, that statement alone is the most idiotic statement you can make because the people they're debating are just as qualified as they are or more so uh, from an educational point of view. I mean, these are people teaching at high levels um, all over the world, whether it's at Oxford or Princeton or Harvard. Um, and, and so I just find it very ironic that they, they contradict themselves over and over again. Their arguments to me are very shallow and superficial. All they can do is make fun of the Christian faith. And you know, a part of me agrees, I, I laugh with them, and I agree, yeah, miracles are silly. Mm-hmm. They, they, it, they can't happen. Uh, but if God exists, then anything can happen, right? So. I just I think they're arguing the wrong thing I think we need to argue God's existence not whether miracles exist because if God exists by definition I remember in school the definition of God is he can do anything so we're really arguing I think the wrong thing when they argue miracles or they argue the issue of evil or Christian abuses why don't we argue the issue if God exists and anything's possible
0: That's Yeah, that's an interesting point. I I remember my debate with an atheist, uh, Jordan, who I actually, like, he's not kind of that typical angry atheist online, stuff like that, but he was saying the same thing. He's like, okay, look, it boils down, if you've got God, you've got a mechanism. So let's debate does God exist or something like that. So, yeah, there's there doesn't seem to be that same recognition on the other end where, you know, oh, they just want to mock and deride miracles as quote-unquote magic and superstitions and stuff like that, there, there is that anti-supernatural bias that a lot of the, the skeptics seem to have. And it's it's not really warranted. It's not well thought out on a lot of their parts. Um, one thing I, I do want to ask you is, well, in terms of approach, my old atheist uh, co-host when I was on the Skeptics and Seekers podcast, he he purposefully employed a polemical approach where, you know, mocking, belittling. Christianity kind of and he saw that as a tactic on his part to expose how you know how silly it is or something like that do, do you think that for Christians doing apologetics is there ever a appropriate time for us to use polemics or something like that or uh yeah is there any value in that approach
1: yeah I, I think that's a I think that's a good question I think Jesus used it mm-hmm. with, with his critics with the Pharisees um he engaged in, in name calling to a certain extent um so I, th- so I think i think there is a place for it um but i, I just see that when you resort to personal attacks or name calling or defamation uh, or ridiculing mocking that would be the word th- then it weakens your argument it shows that you are, have become defensive and that your arguments are deficient because we're I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said that we should use uh, very soft words and very strong arguments, right? And and John Lennox really does that. So when I see John Lennox debate some of the new uh, atheists, they sort of get mad and upset and start attacking. And he's calm and relaxed, having a good time. and, and, And he is displaying that he possesses a superior temperament or superior personality oh. or self-control than this atheist counterpart who, who have to resort to, you know, mm-hmm. derogatory uh, means. Right. Um, it just shows that he, he's smiling. He's comfortable. It doesn't bother him that he doesn't have to lower himself to their standards, to their, uh, I want to use the word perverted, but uh, <laughs> standards uh, because it, it is, it's, it's, it's a, it's a form of, perverted behavior, right? Abusive behavior. He doesn't have to resort to that. He can give smile back, have a good attitude, uh, sort of love them as they're hating him, but he's loving them back, right? He's killing them with love. That's the way I see it. So that's why he's one of my favorite apologists because he doesn't get upset. He just returns love and gives really strong arguments that I think are much more superior. So it's not only his temperament, his personality, but his arguments are superior, uh, and he's debated like like you know like big shots like Christopher hitchenson and I think he's won. Like I think I, quite, I try to remove myself if I wasn't a Christian, if I was an agnostic, who 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 did the better job? And I think John Lennox, hands down, like he, he's not as famous or household name as Christopher hitchinson but I, I think he, he's more intelligent than him for sure. Yeah, you know, yeah. He, he 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 has um he, he's a better debater and he's more winsome he, yeah. he, you know what i mean I'm, I'm attracted to someone like that as opposed to christopher richardson the guy looks like he's you know falling apart you know um yeah. and, and, and i guess he was because he was sick at the end i'm not trying to put him down uh, but he did live a, a lifestyle of um a, a very how should i say a hard lifestyle right yeah the, the yeah, totally... yeah he just he looks Word I'm trying to, I'm not trying to put them down to shovel. Is that the word? Would yeah, with with, um, with uh, Richard Dawkins, right? They look like they're madmen, right? Sometimes when they're going after these Christian apologists. Now, I'm not stereotyping because then you have on the other hand, you have Sam Harris, who's very well put together, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, but again, he's also very mean spirited, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, and so forth and my cat's on in the background so <laughs> no no problem.
0: No. Yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying and stuff like that. And um like like you said too, I I do think that there is a place for it, but we have to be very careful and discerning because for the most part, for most people, including myself, it, when it's just given as a first tactic, it's very um stand, it turn off. it turns me off. Like I don't you know, you have nothing really valuable to say, you just want to insult and belittle and stuff like that. So it, Yeah, I I totally agree that our first approach is to be the Christ-like example where, you know, we come across uh, well and represent him well and that sort of thing. The only time I would see polemics working is in certain contexts where it's appropriate. So, for example, David Wood with Islamic. Uh, apologetics they respect kind of a harsher stance right. and that sort of thing so yeah there, there are situations where it's called for if someone's entrenched has a hard hardness of heart but for the most part we want to represent that John Lennox style so all right cool all right cool so so let's get to your favorite topic then on the dis- disability theology and this is something that I've never Uh, really gotten into a lot. Uh, I don't think I've ever covered it on my show. So do you want to just take some time to, okay, what exactly is disability theology? Um,
1: Yeah, well, before we get to disability theology, um, I'm no longer actively um, running events or organizations related to disability theology. I'm sort of retired from all that, but I did it for many, many years. So I'll give you a little bit of my background. I, I, I worked with people with intellectual disabilities, like community living in Toronto. So traditionally um, in the Western hemisphere, we've had what they call institutions for people with severe disabilities, like physical disabilities or intellectual disabilities, right? People that can't um, live on their own in, 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 within the community. So for instance, in the province of Ontario, at one point uh, before Dalton McGinty, we had like over 30 institutions all across. So, for instance, if you had a child with a severe disability that was um, aggressive or hurting themselves, um, the doctors would tell you you had to put them in one of these institutions, and you didn't really have a choice. Mm. Um, and then in modern times, because of the rights movement, um, then people started speaking up, saying, well, people with disabilities should also have rights, like everybody else is, has rights. So they're being abused. Uh, and in many cases, that, that was the case in these institutions. Uh, over-med- just, overmedicated. Just, yeah, go ahead.
0: Just uh, just for context, because my audience, they're not Canadians. They have no idea who M- M- uh, Dalton McGilty is. Oh. Uh, so, um, what, so this is around, like, the 2000s or something, right? Um,
1: yeah, he's the one that clo- shut them down, but it was progressively happening, right? So now all over the world um, in developed countries, you would have very few institutions open. I think some still exist for people with severe disabilities who are a danger to themselves. So now they've... uh, What's the word I'm looking for here? I want to get the proper word. It's um, deinstitutionalized people with uh, disabilities or severe mental health uh, diagnosis. So you might notice now that you, you see a lot more people in the community that are physically disabled or have mental health disabilities. where in the past, before the 1990s, they most of them would be in these massive uh, institutions, right? So when the rights movement came along, uh, it affected uh, the disabled community uh, in a good way, but there's also a bad side to it. Um, where if you give rights to people that can't manage or who are violent within community, then you get you develop all kinds of other problems, right? Yeah. And, and, and and when you talk to police officers, they're the first ones to tell you that, right? That ha- over ninety percent of their calls are related to severe mental health issues or disabilities. Um, so, so this is the other problem: is that we don't have the support staff if they're living within the community to control them. A lot of the, for instance, shootings in the States are related to this as well, where, you know, you're giving guns to people with disabilities, with mental health disabilities. uh, And and we we know where that can lead, right? There's been a couple cases here in in Canada um, as well, where in the past, these people would have been locked up so they would have not had access to guns or vehicles to run over people. Um, so this is where we're sort of at, sort of weighing, you know. Yes, people with disabilities have rights, but then going too far, giving rights to people who are violent or maybe schizophrenic, who one day they're okay, but if they're off their medication, they may rent a van, like ha- what happened in in, in Toronto, and, and run over people, That's right? So yeah. it's it's a it's a balance game, right? Uh, and it's not working in our favor. It's 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 actually people are calling it now a mental health crisis, right? There's, there's also a drug crisis. It's all related, right? We didn't have that in the past. Why? Because these people were controlled within a mental health institution. So every person has to basically come to where, where do they stand on this, right? Like, yeah, there were abuse in these mental institutions, but for the most part, uh, these people were there to, to protect them from themselves and to protect society. Now they're living amongst us, and it's created all kinds of problems. So that's a little bit of, of the background where society's at. Um, mm-hmm. And then the church sort of has stepped in. Every large church has what we call a, a, a special needs ministry, um, because people with disabilities now are visible within the community, right? Whereas um, they were not in the past because they were in, in institutions. Now they live in group homes or support, or within the community so now the church has had to play a role now these people with disabilities start coming to church what what do we do right so the whole um process of accessibility not just physical accessibility but also being accessible or welcoming spiritually or emotionally right um so again it, it becomes a shock when a group home for instance of 10 people with intellectual disabilities some have physical disabilities as well uh, would show up at a church, how, how do we deal with um, maybe the noise level or their expressions of worship? They look a little bit different. They don't have the social etiquette that you and I may have. They're going to come up to you and give you a big hug and kiss. How do you deal with that? You, 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 I mean, we're not used to that, right? That's not uh, etiquette, right? Yeah. So it's created challenges for the church, but um, support staff with, in the church where believers have stepped up and they started special needs ministries. So special needs ministries are relatively a new thing mm. based upon what's happened with society where now people with disabilities are, are living amongst us. And they do have the right to live amongst us, in my opinion, as long as they're not a danger to themselves and to society. I think that's where you have to draw the line. Um, mm. and, and, and the government is not doing a good job of drawing that line. Right? That yeah. They're saying that everybody has a right and, and we'll deal with the consequences after the fact. Which is not being proactive. So that's a little bit of the background um, there. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about what the Bible actually says about uh, yeah, disability theology, but that's the cultural background. And then the church has stepped up to the plate, especially bigger churches with special uh-huh. needs ministries, right? Which, yeah. which is fantastic. Uh, again, the danger with special needs ministries, though, is some of them tend to segregate people with disabilities into their own classes. Hmm. Right. And so now it's a move for incl- inclusion within the church now. So not to have them within their own class, but integrated within the Sunday school within. Um, right. Within yeah. the congregation so they can worship so they can uh, let me. Yeah.
0: That makes sense to me bit just biblically speaking like look there's neither jew nor gentile there's neither disabled nor abled whatever yeah. it is right we're all one in christ so that makes yeah.
1: sense and one of my when we talk a little bit now about disability um theologians um one of the fascinating things that uh, i'm not a disability theologi- the- theologian mm-hmm. um but i am a disability advocate that's my recognition um so we started can I go back a little bit to my background of course yeah, yeah okay so okay backtrack a little bit so I, I took you where the culture's at where the church is at so when I was in Bible college um I started working with people with disabilities I think I mentioned community in Toronto but there's probably a hundred organizations like that um Christian Horizons would be probably one of the largest ones out there that's Christian based or evangelical based The the founder had a child with a disability, they started Christian Horizons, so they they basically have group homes, right? So so you you live in a condo, Dale, so they might have a condo next door to you that they rent or bought, and and a group of people with disabilities live there with a support staff, that that concept, but it could also be a home, right? But they do Mm -hmm. buy a lot of, um, a lot of these organizations buy a lot of units in condos, right? So so sometimes they have a whole floor, right? Uh, And again, it's the whole concept of integration, which never existed before, Um, community living, that's what they call it, right? Mm -hmm. So um, where was I going with this? So now you have all these organizations to support people with disabilities within the community, uh, and and they have staff going into the group homes. Uh, But the interesting part is that as flawed and uh, what I like to call imperfect and degenerating human beings. Like physically we're degenerating, right? Uh Uh Uh, So disabilities, just the term disability means impairment or it means a limitation. So we all have that. So in the general sense, we're all disabled, right? Um, So we have something called visible disabilities, invisible disabilities. So some disabilities you can't see because they're um, cognitive or mental health, right? They're minor. Or mm-hmm. people suffer from depression you can hide that or from mild forms of autism right you you can hide some of that stuff right um yeah. right but physical disabilities it's harder to hide right you're in a wheelchair you have a cane right but there's something called dual diagnosis where you have both right so you have what? the unfortunate uh unfortunate um place in your life to be physically disabled, you're in a wheelchair, but you also maybe have an intellectual or learning disability or mental health disability, right? So what I'm trying to get at is that all of society, every human being has a disability at one level or another. Then we have aging disabilities. So as we get older, we know that you know our hearing goes, our eyesight goes. Those are all forms of disabilities. They're, they're that- limitations, impairments, right?
0: Can I just jump in, just yeah. to ask you to add to what you're saying, and I'll let yeah. you finish. But um, yeah. what what's your take on maybe the third class of disabilities that never gets attention is spiritual disabilities? Look, oh, I,
1: I, I, actually, we do talk yeah. about that. You just beat me to you just beat me to it. Absolutely, we're we're spiritually disabled because we're disconnected from God. We're broken, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and sin has disabled all of us, right? Death is the greatest disability. So, related to that, there, there's a book that your audience needs to know. It's probably the top book on uh, disability theology. She's passed away now at the age of 44. She was in a wheelchair, she, she was a disability theo- theologian. She passed away several years ago. Her name is Nancy Eastland. So, the name is spelled E I E S L A N D. And she wrote a book that is probably the most famous book out there uh, that became more mainstream called The Disabled God, and it was very controversial. So the book is called The Disabled God by Nancy Eastland, and she's passed on that. But she was a disability theologian, yeah. It's a fantastic book that I think everybody should read. So it's controversial because it talks about how Jesus, who is the God-man, when he came into this world, actually became disabled because he 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 faced all the disabilities the sicknesses right the limitations that we as human beings have right Mm -hmm. um then she talks a lot about him being on the cross he would have been physically disabled by the the beaten the the the, the scourging and the beatings that he he underwent right He, he he appears to thomas we're talking about evidence apologetics right and interesting enough the scars were still there on his side on his wrist, right? (laughs) Someone walking down the street with scars on their body, you would say that someone has a physical deformity or physical disability. So, it's kind of controversial but I think the point can be made that Christ, when he came into this world limited himself and and took on our physical disabilities, right? Um,
0: can i ask you kind yeah. of a, a follow-up question it's a bit of a challenge i just want to see your take it's a yeah. challenge to this notion of a disabled god um i think i so i hear what you're saying during jesus time of humiliation he had a 100 percent human nature he yeah. was subject to all the pains and and pleasures that every other human being is but i'm not sure that i it's right to call him disabled because he was—he was able. He had the ability to gain the abilities back if he wanted. He was willing not to have those full divine abilities in a in a sense, right? So he was still omnipotent, uh, yeah. but he chose not to exercise it. So if somebody objects on that front and says, "Well, he, he's—he is able, but he's just not using those abilities," um, right? Yeah, what right. you.
1: It's yeah, no, I think that's a legitimate point. That God is perfect, so if God is perfect, how can He be disabled? But we're talking about the God-Man. We're not mm-hmm. talking about God the Father or God the Holy Spirit. We're talking about Jesus. He would, He would have, His body would have faced. It was His spirit that was perfect, that was divine. But His body was one hundred percent human, so He would have got sick, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. He, he yep. could have got depressed, right? That's a mental health disability. Yep. We don't know for sure, but right. But yeah. if his body is 100% human, I mean, he could have lost an arm or leg, right? He could have—he could have had all the disabilities, right? He could yeah. have problems with his eyesight. We don't know that for sure. We're just speculating, mm-hmm. or, or a, a hearing problem, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And he probably did when they when they smacked him in the face, right? That probably did some neurological damage, right? So yeah. that's why I said it's controversial. When yeah. that book first, when that book first came out, it, 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 it's still controversial. The disabled God—you don't refer to God that way. So we're talking about the God-Man Jesus who, like you all said, his humiliation, would have um, in his body faced exactly what we could have faced. Cool. So in that sense, yeah. But that's probably the most popular book out there. There's others. I mean, Brian Brooke wrote a book, Wondrously Wounded. Uh, John uh, Winton, Finding Jesus in the Storm. The spiritual lives of Christians with mental health challenges. So these are these dis- disability theologians as well. But N- Nancy Easton uh, is probably the, one of the best known. Um, I-, I have to tell you about a friend of mine. I just have to get in there. His name is Dr. Neil Cudney, and he, is, um, he works for Christian Horizons. He also teaches now disability theology at Tyndale. So mm-hmm. that's recent that he was able to sort of convince them. So you can actually go to Tyndale University here in toronto and, and take a course on uh disability theology so not, not every seminary or bible college would offer that by the way
0: yeah so awesome. yeah okay well la- last question uh we again we are limited time it's 10 a.m so this will be my last question yeah. for you and so you've kind of talked about disability theology again which is totally new to me and my audience so this is great um something new to consider and you've, you've told us about, okay, from within the church, how are we supposed to deal with uh, people that have disabilities? Now, what about people outside the church? You know, we're trying to share the gospel with people that have disabilities that aren't already believers. Um, is there any differences in how we're supposed to share the gospel message with unbelievers who are disabled?
1: Yeah, so that's a very good point because there's two philosophies that seem to be a uh, odd uh within the secular community um where some people are w- would say we have to embrace our disability that we have limitations and then there's other people like rick hansen who you know he's in a wheelchair he went to the special olympics and did very well sort of it's what they call the the the, the superhero right yeah. so your disability actually gives you an edge over people without disabilities right you 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 are uh, it's like more more, more more courageous more you know what i mean you're you're a stronger person because of your disability right some people mm-hmm. don't like that that they equate their disability with sort of this superhero mentality that you know you can do you can do anything you can get in a wheelchair but some people can't right so you mm-hmm. got to be careful and even within the church uh that some people with disabilities they, they want I wouldn't say to wallow in their disability or have a pity party, but to acknowledge it and to acknowledge their limitations that they can't do everything, right? So I think you have to balance the two because there are people with disabilities that are very able. We have the late who was a friend of mine, David Onley, who became Canada's first uh, anchorman uh, for CP24 with a with he had polio with a he was in a wheelchair, right, with a physical disability, right? Uh mm-hmm. So, but he he was very able, right? But he could not run a marathon, right? He told me personally he his dream as a child was to be an astronaut, and mm-hmm. and, and you know he was he was actually quite knowledgeable, not an expert on that issue, right, of space and NASA and, and uh, but he couldn't because of his polio, right? So he was limited. But he became an anchorman. Then he became, as we all know, the lieutenant, uh, lieutenant governor of Ontario, right? And he was one of the best lieutenant governors of ontario and he championed disability rights and accessibility and inclusion so again from one perspective yeah he's a superhero i could do what he did i couldn't be the lieutenant governor i couldn't be an anchorman right but then from the other perspective his dream of being an astronaut was, was squashed because of his of his polio so i think we, we got to be sensitive to each individual um, yeah. but they I, I, I my real heart it's good to know what's going on in the community, but is what the Bible actually says. The, the Bible is filled <laughs> with examples of disability. Do I have time to go rattle the yeah. packs off? Okay, so first of all, like we all know Moses, right? Mm-hmm. The Bible yeah. tells us that he had a, a, he was slow to speech. He probably had a stuttering disability or speech disability. That's in Exodus four. Then we all know the story of Samson that he was blind, but God mm-hmm. used him, right? In Judges sixteen. Then we know about a guy named, uh, and I'm probably going to say his name wrong, uh, uh, Mephishoseph, I think it is. He was crippled in 2 Samuel 4, um, right? <laughs> then we, we hear about Nebuchadnezzar. He had a mental, he suffered from mental illness. We, hear, we know about Jeroboam's hand that withered and was restored, Nahum's leprosy. And then we have other examples of leprosy in the New Testament. Jacob, who wrestled with the Lord, he walked with a limp, right? So that would be in a physical disability. We come in the New Testament, we find, uh, find out about a very interesting guy named Zacchaeus, right? We have whole shows on television now called uh, Little People, Big World, whatever, you know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. They would call themselves Little People, right? So yeah. he, he would have had a disability uh, uh, there. Um, we look at, uh, for instance, the Apostle Paul, where it says he had a thorn in the flesh. Theologians believe that was an eyesight, right? He had a problem with his, with his vision, right? So it was a vision disability. And you know, uh, so there's examples in the Bible. Out of Jesus' 21 miracles, he healed people with disabilities. One of my favorite passages is in Matthew 11, where John's in prison, and he sends his disciples to go find Jesus. And John's disciples ask Jesus, "How would we know that you're the Messiah?" And Jesus says, "Well, go back and tell my cousin John what you've seen: the, the, the lame walk, the blind see, you know, the poor being fed." So he healed people with disabilities, right? Mm-hmm. We 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 hear him in John nine healing a person that was blind right. There's other cases where he heals the lame and the blind, even people that have were dead right, like Lazarus right. It, yeah. He brings them back to life, and so like his whole ministry was basically surrounded with people with disabilities. It, it actually says that he actually became, and this is part of apologetics, is that it, it is is that Jesus was a celebrity, mm. there were thousands, not hundreds thousands of people following him right and that's pretty hard to say he didn't exist when thousands of people when he's going from town to town to town and they're bringing their sick family members or friends for jesus to touch and heal i mean that that's a huge case for for apologetics because um it wasn't hundreds it was thousands uh he fed the five thousand right that was just men so it was probably ten thousand right Oh, uh, um, yeah. So he, he was he was like a celebrity today. He was well-known. Um, p- there were hundreds and thousands of eyewitnesses to his miracles. Um, and, and the interesting part, uh, and the passage is eluding me now, but it will come to me eventually, is where Jesus said that those people who reject our message, okay, they reject it. If they reject it, then you go out and bring in the lame and the blind and bring them in to my house, to mm-hmm. my banquet, right? So mm-hmm. we're, we're commanded to physically go out and invite the disabled to come to God's banquet, to God's house, to invite them to, to, to receive the gospel, right? And yeah. lastly, I'll say this, which is very powerful, is that we, we know that Jesus um, used miracles to authenticate His, his message or, or Himself as the God-man. Mm-hmm. It's very important to understand that, and you brought it up, and that's I guess where we need to end, is spiritual disabilities, that the whole human race is spiritually disabled or we're impaired, we're were limited, we don't see properly. Where Jesus, when he healed someone in John 9 of a physical disability, blindness, physical blindness, he equated that to spiritual blindness. He says, okay, this guy's physically disabled, but you guys are spiritually blind, which is worse, right? Exactly. Because you're denying me, you're denying who I am, right? And so I think that's what we, we would say to the new atheists and to se- skeptics is according to Jesus, not according to Dale and Jamie, you're spiritually blind. You, you have the greatest disability because that disability will disconnect you from God for eternity. Yeah, exactly. And, and I just want to add one last thing to that is that we have all kinds of secular studies that show that people of faith, people that worship, people that pray, people that believe in the things we believe, Live superior lives as far as happiness and purpose and even health than, than our secular counterparts. So that's that's very interesting as well when it comes to apologetics, right?
0: Yeah, you know uh, when you were reading the Bible, I, I so the, just a couple couple last things kind of yeah. thing. One one thing that kind of struck me is that okay, based on how Jesus and uh god treats disabilities you remember you were kind of talking about in the secular world there are these two fundamental philosophical schools those who embrace their disabilities and and say like this is a good thing it 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 makes me superman or something like that um versus the others who are kind of look i'm just acknowledging i've got this and and there's a limitation it sounds to me like yeah that disabilities are not a good thing in and of themselves. Jesus heals them, right? It's it's not the original design plan. But at the same time, we live in a fallen world. So we need to be realistic and acknowledge yeah. that. And,
1: yeah. and, you, and, and to add to that point, uh, there's all kinds of scriptures, which maybe we can do a separate segment on, is that through our weakness, we are strong. So exactly. and Jesus said, I came for the sick, not for the healthy. So, in that sense, disability is very good that we acknowledge our disabilities or, or physical limitations, our spiritual limitations, know that we cannot, no, we, we don't have the ability to self identify because that's God's characteristics, that's God's attribute, right? Exactly. Only that's God can right. self identify, right? That's a, so, um, that's so exactly what I was We thinking. need to acknowledge that we're disabled, that we can't come to God on our own, that we can't, uh, Earn our own salvation. That we're, that we're broken. So disabilities is directly connected to the gospel, where we have to acknowledge that we're a sinner. It's basically acknowledging that we're disabled. We're disabled. We've been disabled from God. It's sort of like you're plugged into your computer, and you unplug the plug. We're disabled, and only God can plug it back in. Right? Right. Yeah. And then we, you know, we yeah, obviously right. it's still our our choice to respond to that, yeah. but He initiates it. I
0: totally I totally agree. That that so you said it better than me. That's what I was trying to get. Is that look, uh there it's not it's not intrinsically good, but it's instrumentally good for the purpose that you well, said. Yeah, but
1: God you. God uses remember the verses where it says God uses He turns our ashes into beauty. Exactly. Turns what yeah. was meant for our, so it, it's it's like it's almost like reverse psychology, where it is bad, but God, because he's God, has the ability to take what is bad and turn it into good. There's even a verse in the Bible that's mind-boggling that says Paul gloried. He celebrated his infirmities, his disabilities, his weaknesses, right? There's another passage where it says that God honors the weaker members of the body more than the stronger members. Why? Because he wants us to come as weak. Because when we come as weak, then his power can flow through us. If we come through self-righteousness and our own strength, then God can't flow through us because pride blocks that right yeah. That's, yeah we're not Superman. we're not we can't do it on our own right so yeah. i think the three yeah. things they are that I, I i've never really connected them as we have today that really abuse and disability and um apologetics they really go together
0: absolutely all right cool so uh no there's no audience questions but uh, the audience was enjoying the show and stuff but I just want to ask you one last question that we will take off, I promise. But um, modern miracle healings, um, what's your take on it? Do you think that God still miraculously heals people today, or is that something that was only during the time of Jesus? Uh, What's your uh, quick take on that?
1: Well, I'll I'll answer it from a – I'll play the devil's advocate, and I'll pretend I'm a skeptic. Okay. Right? So I'll say from a skeptic point of view, like an honest skeptic, I'm not talking about people who are intellectually dishonest, right? Because mm-hmm. that leads <laughs> to abuse too, right? <laughs> um, is that if you're if you're an honest, intellectually honest skeptic or atheist or agnostic, whatever the case is, you would have to admit, based on not Christian studies, secular studies, right? Yeah. That uh, medical mysteries happen. I mean, there's. I think last time I checked, 12 shows on television talking about. Uh, the unknown or the unexplained. I think he's Canadian. William Shatner does a show on that. The unexplained, right? Uh, There's all kinds of shows on TV talking about uh, the paranoia. These guys are going to haunted houses with all the gadgets, right, or farms, right, Mm -hmm. and and detecting different noises and uh, things of that sort. So there's all kinds of shows where our culture embraces that, the unknown, the unexplained. I mean, aliens, you know, we can get into that one day. That's fascinating as well aliens and uh, ufos right uh, a lot of believers believe those are fallen angels right yeah. um, that are doing their business lost. yeah yeah so our our culture acknowledges all that and we just happen to call it miracles they call it the unexplained the unknown paranormal uh, whatever right uh, yeah. uh yeah. medical mystery so they they acknowledge uh, so that's why i find very ironic that people like christopher Hitchinson, sam harris they're not intellectually honest because they, they will acknowledge it, they just call it something different. What? And we as believers would also acknowledge with them, we agree with them. This is something I always say that uh, believers and skeptics or atheists have in common. We we agree with Christopher Hitchinson and Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins, Lawrence Crows, that miracles in the natural are impossible, that they're foolish, it's it's ridiculous. It it, it doesn't happen. Of course yeah. it doesn't. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about the supernatural. So let's debate the real thing. Does God exist? See, if he exists, then anything's possible, right? So that's why I I, I will end it, that there's categorical evidence for miracles from a secular perspective. We just happen to call it something different. Awesome.
0: Awesome. All right, cool. Well, thank you so much, Jamie. This was uh, an awesome interview, and I'm sure I'll have you back on to discuss stuff like this in more detail in, in the future and stuff. Did you enjoy your time on, on your end there?
1: Or? Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're a great host. Uh, I, I definitely want to talk about your subject, which uh, I was – me and my son were actually uh, looking at it last night, which um, is a sh- shot of Turan. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah this, uh, um, uh, can I just put one plug in, or do we have to go? No. go.
0: go. It, yeah. I'm, so so it for you. We were
1: watching one documentary, and I forget who the people are. You would know. That they actually said they found dirt, and they traced that dirt. On Jesus' nose, uh, knees, and somewhere else, I think on the body, uh, and, and traced it back to the first century. Which I, I said, "Wow, that's that's fascinating." <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't think so. They haven't
0: dated. It's on uh, the bottoms of his feet as well. They haven't. Yeah, dated.
1: that's that's it. Yeah,
0: uh, they can't date the the dirt, obviously, right? But it's yeah. what they what they do is they link it to Jerusalem. this yeah, 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 yeah. Dust that's in Calvary area. Right.
1: Indeed. Yeah the limestone and all that kind of stuff it's, it's yes yeah.
0: Yeah, it's, yeah, it's fascinating yeah if you want to you're welcome on my show to talk about the shroud anytime for sure yeah well so. I'm,
1: not, I'm not an expert i would be an observer but okay <laughs> I, I find it fascinating because you know what i was a skeptic right because i i always believed in that carbon dating right yeah right which we know now that it, that it's that, yeah,
0: yeah it's been falsified i mean e- even oxford labs one of the labs that dated it in 1988 they've come out and said the dating was wrong we can't rely on it
1: well the... the thing we heard last night was that they repaired it during the medieval times right uh-huh. and mm-hmm. to repair it they actually put like their own cloth and they dyed it to sort of match uh the, the older cloth so around a lot around the edges of it because it was deteriorating they actually repaired it and weaved it in sold it in with cloth cotton cloth from the medieval time and they dyed it so you, with the human eye you can't tell the difference so that's what they were dating is the repairs with the cotton cloth that they used during the medieval times. But yeah. obviously, if they did right in the middle, it would destroy it, right? But the dates, it, it's different. It's linen in the middle. It's cotton. In the. It's different material.
0: Yeah. There's, so there's definitely. So that's the inv- my friend Joe Marino. He's invented yeah. this invisible reweave hypothesis. And I think this is the most popular theory. I myself disagree with it, believe it or not. I go yeah. for Bob Rucker's neutron absorption explanation. So neutrons were irradiated. It um, now that's a supernatural explanation versus a natural one. But yeah, the, definitely the invisible reweave is something that you have to take seriously. It there has been cotton proven to be in that section and it's not representative to the rest of the cloth and stuff like that so
1: yeah it's just i just found it fascinating maybe i'll take it up
0: <laughs> absolutely yeah cool i would I, I would love to welcome you to the shroud crowd so <laughs>
1: um, yeah, i'll be called a shroudy
0: there you go a shroudy yep all right dale <laughs> all right yeah. thank you so Thanks, much buddy Jay. take care all right take care everyone and uh, have a great week just so everyone knows i will be on sj thomason's channel next friday Um, discussing Walter McCrone and the painting hypothesis for the Shroud of Turin. So tune into that. But otherwise, have a great week, everybody.
1: Bye-bye. You do. All right, I'm hitting the red button.